Welcome to Night Sky Tourist, a place to learn the night sky, have fun with its ancient stories, meet astronomers and dark sky advocates, and fall in love with the dark. I'm Vicki Dirksen, your host and author of the website and blog, nightskytourist.com. If you've never visited the website, I invite you to stop by after the podcast. Check out some of the great blog articles, browse through the resource page, and sign up for the monthly newsletters. The newsletters have great content that is exclusive for subscribers. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're familiar with Ted Blank, our favorite NASA Solar System Ambassador, who does our Q&A segment. Tonight, Ted joins me as my guest to talk about how to buy a telescope for your own backyard stargazing experiences. Are you ready? Let's jump right in. When I first got interested in astronomy and learning my way around the night sky, my main tools were a star wheel or a planisphere and a stargazing app and my own eyes. I spent a couple of years only doing naked eye stargazing. And then my husband surprised me with a telescope for Christmas a couple of years ago, a legit telescope, and it has a six inch mirror on it. I can see the moons of Jupiter and the colored storm cloud stripes on it. I can see the rings of Saturn, and I can see amazing details on the moon. Mark doesn't know the first thing about telescopes, but luckily we know someone who does. So he called Ted Blank, and they had a discussion about my needs and how I would use it, and then Ted recommended a telescope that I'm still using nearly two years later. Not only do I set it up in my yard with my family and friends, but I also use it to help host stargazing events at the beautiful Adero Scottsdale Resort multiple times throughout the year. And over the summer, I even offered Airbnb experiences and met wonderful strangers from across the country who wanted to see cool stuff in the night sky. Ted Blank was my first guest on the Night Sky Tours podcast in episode one, and you should check it out so you can get to know him and how he became a NASA Solar System Ambassador. Please join me tonight in welcoming back to the podcast, Ted Blank. Ted, welcome back to the Night Sky Tours podcast as a guest. This is your second appearance here on the podcast. Thank you. Uh, but you've been doing our question and answer segment for almost an entire year. And did you know that next month actually marks the first anniversary of the podcast? Oh, congratulations, Vicki. That's hey. awesome. You started out with me and we've been on a great journey with this. And I really hope that everybody goes back and listens to that first episode so that they can get to know you and hear about all the cool astronomy stuff that you do. But tonight we're going to talk about telescopes. So my first question for you is, do you remember the first time you looked through a telescope? I do. I do. Um, it was many years ago. My son was attending a Boy Scout camp over the summer. And when I went to pick him up uh, at the end of, I think it was two weeks, there was a dad who had been there for the whole two weeks. And he and his son found a, an old telescope in some storage shed and they cleaned it up and refurbished it. And on the night I was there, they brought it out into a field and pointed it up in the sky. And when I looked in the eyepiece, I saw Jupiter and the four Galilean moons for the first time ever. 
it was a big red telescope. It was about six feet tall. I think it was made by a company named Coulter. And uh, they, they made these reflected Newtonian reflectors on a, on a Dobsonian mount that you, you're familiar with. And they were, the view was fantastic, almost straight overhead, if I remember right. Jupiter had stripes on it. I could see weather on another planet. The Galilean moons were these tiny dots of light in a straight line out to the sides. And I couldn't believe you could see these things from Earth in any kind of machine or, or, or contraption. So, uh, yeah, I remember that uh, very, very vividly. And uh, it was a real life changer. I feel like I probably had looked through a telescope when I was younger, but my first like actual memorable moment of looking through a telescope was the first time I visited Lowell Observatory up in Flagstaff, Arizona. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know what the telescope was pointed mm -hmm. at when I first <laughs> walked up to it. Mm -hmm. And I put my eye up to the eyepiece and that's what I saw for the first time too, was Jupiter. And I was floored, I couldn't believe it. It's a beautiful sight, yeah. It really is. And you know, people ask me pretty frequently, uh, what kind of telescope that I have and what kind I would recommend. And I really feel very inadequate about answering those questions because I really do a lot of naked eye stargazing. Mm -hmm. And so I don't really know a lot about the equipment. I always come to you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why you're here today. And, to um, and, you know, I have to say, though, that having a telescope really does enhance the experience. So are you ready to talk shop with all of us amateurs? <laughs> you bet. Before you buy a telescope, I would always recommend to folks that they uh, either join a local astronomy club and or attend some public stargazing events with that are run by amateurs where you'll find lots of telescopes spread out across a field and you can walk from one to the other, look through them, Get an idea of what kinds of telescopes exist. You know, we've got reflectors, refractors, and other kinds, how they operate, how much they weigh, how big they are, how easy they are to move around, and whether they're specialized for viewing different kinds of objects. Because after you've had a chance to look through a telescope or two or three or four, uh, you'll probably, like I did, fall in love with a certain class of celestial objects that are beautiful to look at. That could be planets, including the moon. It could be deep sky objects, galaxies and nebula. It could be double stars or star clusters. And depending on the kind of object you really enjoy looking at the most, there are different telescopes that are better, slightly better for one type or the other of object. So it kind of depends on what you fall in love with in the sky. So if somebody were to take all of those questions and answer those questions for themselves, mm -hmm. then how would you how would you have them break down the answers to that so that they could find the best telescope for themselves? Okay, then I would ask some practical questions of myself. Where am I going to store this thing? Okay, do I am I in a fourth floor apartment where I walk up and down the stairs? Okay, well that makes a big difference. Uh, can I bring it in the elevator? Do you have a good view of the sky in at least a few directions from your backyard or wherever it is you're going to be observing from? Um, what's your budget? You know, how much do you feel like you can afford to spend? And don't even think about astrophotography 
until maybe a couple of years into the hobby. A lot of folks will say, I'd love a telescope that I can use for observing the planets and maybe the occasional deep sky object. And I'm nodding my head, nodding my head. And then they go, and I want to take a few photographs with my DSLR camera. Well, those two sets don't intersect. Uh, you know, it, it's definitely easy to take some photographs with a cell phone. They make adapters that can uh, connect up to an eyepiece on your telescope, and it will hold your, your cell phone accurately over the eyepiece. And you can take some wonderful pictures of planets and the moon, and maybe even a few deep sky objects with the latest models of cell phones that have this nice low light camera option. But other than that, if you're thinking about taking that nice, nice, uh, uh, SLR camera and hooking it up to the side of the scope. Don't even think about beginning to do that. Just enjoy the views and learn more about the technology. It, astrophotography is a completely different hobby, and I wouldn't recommend anybody try getting into it for four or five years after beginning uh, an amateur observing uh, lifestyle. Well, and you and I have a mutual friend who is getting into astrophotography, and he frequently makes the comment about how it's not an inexpensive hobby. <laughs> not at all, not at all. So I've looked through a variety of telescopes now, and, and I'm not gonna lie, this six inch mirror telescope is actually my favorite, which is the one that you had recommended for me. Because, and I, what I love about it is that the objects are large enough to recognize, but they're really clear. And it seems like the larger the mirror, sometimes the fuzzier the object is. So can you explain why that is? Sure. Um, looking straight up, our atmosphere is about 60 miles thick. Okay, so that's a lot of air for the light from the object to travel through to reach the telescope. And if that air is in motion, it can be a little bit like looking through a campfire. The, the light from the object gets bent back and forth and back and forth on the way through the 60 miles of air, and it, we call that scintillation. So it can make it seem to be a little fuzzy. And, and objects with lots of detail, fine detail on them, like the planets and the moon, suffer uh, most from this sort of, of scintillation and uh, degradation of the image. The atmosphere is made up of cells of air that tend to have the same properties. They're the same temperature. They're moving in the same direction and so on. And typically, telescopes that are eight inches or below tend to be able to gather light that has passed through just a, a small number of these cells so that the light is not refracted and damaged uh, to a great degree. When you get to larger and larger telescopes, uh, 12, 14, 16, 18 inches, the atmosphere tends to be turbulent on a scale that can degrade the image of that larger telescope so that it doesn't work much better than a smaller scope would. Depends on the atmosphere and so on. Um, here in Arizona, there are many, many nights where the atmosphere is calm and clear and a larger telescope will work very well. But in the Northeast where I come from, uh, it's typically the case that people who buy 18-inch telescopes end up selling them because they find that the views through them are no better than they were through a smaller, much easier to manage telescope. Now, for deep sky objects, it's a little different. Deep sky objects like galaxies and nebulae don't have a lot of the fine detail that you'll see on a planet or on the moon. So for those, even in situations where the atmosphere can be turbulent, 
a bigger aperture is typically better because you'll be able to see that object more brightly. You can magnify it a little more and see a little more detail on it. Even though you're not going to see the fine detail you see on a planet, it's still a pleasing view. So aperture still wins for deep sky objects, except in the most turbulent of atmospheric conditions. And I think this is important for people to understand when they're going out to look for a telescope, because budget is a really big part of determining factor of what they choose. Mm -hmm. And I don't want people to feel like, you know, well, I can only afford this six inch mirror <laughs> telescope. Right. When really it's a fantastic choice, like you said, unless you're doing the deep sky stuff. Well, even for deep sky stuff, six inches, a six inch diameter mirror gathers a lot more light than the eighth inch size of the pupil of your eye. Think of the comparison between those two. All the light that hits the six inch mirror ends up being uh, carefully focused down into an image that fits into the pupil of your eye. So it's hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of times brighter. And uh, you can see a lot more detail as your experience has shown with your six inch telescope. You and I recently traveled to Palm Springs together to tour the Rancho Mirage Observatory because our future International Dark Sky Discovery Center is gonna have the same kind of telescope. So you organized this research trip for our team and we got an awesome detailed look at their facility. And their telescope was, was it a 27 inch mirror? 27 inch mirror. So when I stepped up to the eyepiece and we looked at Saturn in there, I was expecting to see so much more detail than I would actually see my six inch. And, you know, I did, I did see some more detail because I could see a little bit of the separations in the rings mm -hmm. around Saturn, which I don't see the, that separation in mine. And I could see a little bit of the colored bands created by Saturn storm clouds, which I can't see that in mine either. And of course it was larger to look at, but it really lacked the crisp edges that my six inch had. And, and, you know, I had to take into account, okay, it's been really windy here in Palm Springs. So there was a lot of haze in the air from that too. So, I mean, you know, I don't want people to get me wrong. It was awesome, but it also made me feel really happy that my six inch mirror gives me that same thrilling uh, feeling when I look at Saturn. Absolutely. Yeah. The number of nights when the atmosphere is calm and still and clear enough is going to be fewer for a 27 inch telescope. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you that on nights when it is calm, still and clear, the views through a 27 inch telescope will knock your socks off. Absolutely. Which is why we travel to observatories any chance we get, right? That's right. <laughs> Are there any particular brands that you think people should start with when they're looking for their first telescope? Well, it's, it's an open secret that most of the glass, uh, either mirrors or lenses, is made by a couple of companies, Sinta in China and uh, GSO in Taiwan. And then in the US, those are assembled by companies here, some of which are owned by those companies in China, uh, but they're assembled using uh, materials available here. And then they're put together in various kits that have more or fewer parts or attempt to uh, uh, package it with uh, more eyepieces or a better mount or more electronics. Uh, so there's lots of different options, uh, but those telescopes end up being sold by companies like Orion, Celestron, 
Mead, Astrotech, Explore Scientific, Ioptron, Apertura, and some others. You can really safely buy from any of those companies and get good quality equipment that's with good quality glass, mirrors, or lenses, and, and get a good experience. Um, shopping around for the package that fits your needs the best will be the answer to which one of those to choose. So we have to actually take a minute here and talk about the really inexpensive telescopes that are sold at the big box stores, mm -hmm. usually under $100. I have one. I found it when I was out um, jogging in my neighborhood one morning at a garage sale. And so I went back afterwards and they bought it for $20. And I was like, oh my gosh, I own my own telescope. Yeah. And it was very disappointing. <laughs> I, I, absolutely. Yeah. For a hundred dollars, um, you can typically put together a telescope with a, a inch and a half or two inch lens at the front. And the optics tend to be actually pretty good quality. Uh, the issue becomes the mount that holds it up, the tripod and the part that goes from the tripod to the telescope. That tends to be a cheap, flimsy, plastic uh, set of legs. And there's no way that it can hold an object steadily in the eyepiece for you. So most people are disappointed by the views because uh, they can't find anything and then they can't keep anything in the eyepiece after they're done looking at it. Like, take a look at this mom. And when mom looks, there's nothing there because the telescope slips. Mm -hmm. If you were to take that telescope off that crummy plastic tripod and somehow attach it to a photo tripod, a stable photo tripod, um, I think you would be happy with the views through the eyepiece. Uh, they'd be dim and small, but they'd be stable and probably a lot better than you would get trying to use the, uh, the flimsy tripod that came with it. I tell people that if you took that telescope and, and just tied one end of it to a tree trunk and sat on the ground and looked through the other end of it, it would be nice and stable. And in fact, that's how Galileo looked through a lot of his telescopes. He would drive a stake into the ground, tie the front of the telescope to the stake with a piece of rubber band, and then sit on the ground and move it around and look through the back end. It's actually a very stable way to use one of those cheap telescopes. Uh, use a fence post. Uh, yeah, that kind of thing actually works pretty well. But I wouldn't spend my money on those telescopes, even under those circumstances. They're junk, typically, mm -hmm. and uh, they would not give you a satisfactory result. And they turn more people off to astronomy than they turn them on. My, in my experience with the one that I have, I think that the little finder that you look through isn't aligned. Um, because it's really, I mean, what, what should be the easiest thing to see in the night sky, but the moon, and I have trouble getting the moon in it. It's, it is very frustrating. And you get, um, you know, here in Arizona, I'm out there trying to look, look for the moon through it and I'm sweating and it's, it is very frustrating. I, I also don't really recommend those save up your money and get something good. You know, and, and honestly, the one that I got is it was only a few hundred dollars. You know, it was less than a thousand dollars for the whole setup. Right. Once somebody gets a telescope, is there any kind of prep that they need to do to be able to use it for the first time? Well, most important is to pick a good place to store it. Of course, uh, it should be someplace dry, uh, away from insects, away from dust, and. Uh, it's important to realize also that when you look through a telescope, you'll get the best views if the optics and the tube are about the same temperature as the outside air. It turns out that if the telescope is 
really warm compared to the air or really cold, you'll get a lot of heat either being transferred out of the scope or into the scope. And this causes the air right in front of the uh, glass uh, to be very wavy and it degrades the image tremendously. So as the telescope cools or warms to the outside atmosphere temperature, uh, the views get better and better. But that can take an hour or an hour and a half. And by then you're probably ready to go in. So I recommend to people try to store your telescope in a place where it'll be about the same temperature as whatever temperature you'll be using it out in the evening. And here in Arizona, an unheated garage is probably best, uh, unair conditioned garage. So you don't want the scope to be at uh, 65 when you're going out and the temperature is 100. And uh, the same way back east, when it was cold outside, uh, I'd leave the telescope out in the garage for a couple hours before observing so it wouldn't be warm before we went outside. Uh, we had the problems back east with dew forming on the telescope, of course, if it was too cold. Uh, luckily, here in the desert, haven't had that problem. So do you have any other tips for telescope owners that I haven't thought to ask about? Well, you mentioned uh, what to do the first time you get your telescope. And one of the tips that uh, we talk about is uh, collimation. Um, the collimation means adjusting the two mirrors in, in a reflector telescope so that they are coaxial, meaning they're parallel to the light rays coming in from the sky. And I recommend to people that this is a lot easier to do if you have something called a laser collimeter that takes a little beam of red light, shines it into the eyepiece, into the focuser, and with a few twists of some knobs, you're able to quickly line up the mirrors so that they're uh, parallel to the light rays coming in from the sky. The uh, final tweaks on that can make a tremendous difference in um, how the quality of the image that you see. The other thing I want to mention is the internet. It's a great place to learn about the sky, about your equipment, and so on. And there's a website called cloudynights.com which is, of course, where you go on cloudy nights when you can't observe. And they have all these different forums on eyepieces, refractors, reflectors. There's a forum for every type of mount. But most interestingly for our listeners, Beginner's Forum is the place to spend your cloudy nights. There are thousands of questions that have been asked and answered in the kindest way. It's, it's, it's not a snarky place at all. Folks who answer the questions do so in a way that really makes you feel good. And I think any question you can probably imagine asking has already been asked a hundred times and answered 500 ways on Beginner's Forum on cloudynights.com. I learned a ton going there and I suggest, I urge everybody who's a beginner to go to cloudynights.com and, and just browse that Beginner Forum, look around and, and just absorb as much of that information as you can. It's a great resource. Ted, thank you so much. I love it when you share your knowledge with us and you always put it in such a simple way that everybody can understand. And I hope that people go out and start shopping. This is a great time to shop for a telescope with the holidays coming up and uh, do it before Jupiter and Saturn are gone for the, the year. And because those are some of the best, best, best things to look at. Thanks for having me. It's time for our tour across the night sky. Fall is here and the evenings are starting to feel chilly. 
and it's time to pause the podcast, grab your jacket and everyone in your house, and I'll meet you outside under the stars. Venus is still hanging out bright and beautiful in the evening sky. It's getting a little more towards the west, so get outside right away in the evening so that you can see it. It's currently located between Libra and Scorpius, and it is the brightest object in the southwestern sky. I have November 7th marked on my calendar because it's the next time that the thin sliver of the waxing crescent moon will be really close to Venus. And this pairing is one of my very favorite things to see in the night sky. Jupiter is almost at the meridian in the early evening hours. The meridian is like an imaginary line and it runs directly overhead from the North Pole to the South Pole. And it separates the East from the West in our sky. By about 8 p.m. Arizona time, Jupiter will still be a bit east of the meridian. Saturn is located just two fist lengths to the west of Jupiter. Jupiter is located on the eastern edge of Capricornus, and Saturn is just inside the western edge of it. We'll still have both of these gas giant beauties in our night sky through the end of the year. Let's talk about the path of the moon tonight. We have so many spectacular objects to look at in the night sky, but the moon remains a favorite for most people. Poets and lovers have swooned under it. Our sci-fi adventures still like to take us to it. And NASA wants to return to the moon in just two years if their astronauts are ready in time. If you are looking up at the night sky on the night this podcast is published, it is October 12th. And tonight, the moon has reached its first quarter. That means it will be at the meridian at sunset and you'll see the right half perfectly lit. It is in the constellation Sagittarius tonight. So look for the teapot asterism toward the southwestern sky and you'll see the moon just to the east of it. Check it out again in just eight days on October 20th, but this time face the eastern horizon at sunset. Be patient and you can watch the full moon rise in the constellation Pisces. The October full moon was known to some indigenous peoples as the hunter's moon. The hunter's moon was a signal that it was time to start hunting and making preparations before the cold of winter arrived. If you wait another eight days until October 28th, the moon will be in its third quarter phase. And this is when the moon rises near midnight over the eastern horizon and only the eastern half of the moon is lit. It will be between the constellations Cancer and Gemini. On November 4th, it will reach its new moon phase, and you won't see any moon on that night because the moon is at its closest point to the sun in the constellation Libra, so we can't see it with the naked eye. It also means that the moon sets at the same time that the sun sets, so it is going to be a completely moonless night. This is one of the best times in the month for stargazing because the moon is not lighting up the sky and washing out the fainter stars and constellations. Then seven days later on November 11th, we'll be back at the first quarter moon. So be sure to mark your calendar for October 16th, which is International Observe the Moon Night, which is sponsored by NASA. This would be a fun time to do some nature journaling. You could sketch the moon with some neighboring stars and constellations. 
And if you need some nighttime nature journaling inspiration, check out the interview that I did with John Muir Laws in episode 22. Let's make a quick little jump across the zodiac tonight. If you're stargazing in the early evening hours, you're going to notice that Scorpius is starting to sink toward the western horizon shortly after sunset. To the east of Scorpius is Sagittarius, which is easiest to find by looking for that famous teapot asterism. And if you're in a dark enough location, you'll see the stream of the Milky Way rising from the teapot's spout, like steam. To the east of Sagittarius is Capricornus, where you're going to find Jupiter and Saturn. And east from there is Aquarius, the water bearer. Move east just a bit more and you're going to find Pisces. However, it's made of very dim stars, so if you live in a light-polluted area, it's going to be pretty difficult to see. Head east some more and you can look for the small constellation of Aries, the Ram. And peeking up just above the eastern horizon is the Pleiades, a small cluster of super bright stars that are part of the constellation Taurus, which is not really quite visible yet. This is a great month for stargazing and planet gazing. Try to get access to some binoculars or a telescope to get a really good look at our nearby planets before the end of the year. Until our next star tour, keep looking up. Tonight's recommendation are Spiral Spectrum's Cosmic Calendars, and Julie Wilder was a guest on episode five of the Night Sky Tours podcast, where she shared with us about her amazing cosmic calendars. We had a lovely chat that I hope you take time to listen to, and as we're approaching 2022, Julie has created a new series of calendars for the new year, and they're ready for pre-sale, and I've asked her to share about the new series. Hi, Julie. Hi, so good to hear you again. So first, give us a brief overview of your calendars. What makes them different than a typical calendar? Well, what's different about them is it's a really um, something that is for visual learners. Um, it takes a lot of the astronomy and astrology data that people are so into out there in the world, and it puts it into a visual format that I think is pretty easy to navigate. Um, it's got full moons on it. It's got new moons on it. It's got all the eclipses, the meteor showers, and uh, depending on which calendar you get, it might even have the planetary transits or the moon transits as they move through the zodiac sign. Uh, but it's all on one page and it's actually really like this beautiful piece of artwork if I do say so myself that also has all of this data that would be honestly a little bit crazy making to look at um, if you were looking at it in eight point type <laughs> and that's one of the things I really love about your calendars is that they really are a piece of art and I frame them and put them on the wall as art and I don't do that with a typical calendar what is your favorite thing about creating these calendars? Honestly, my favorite thing is like just the feedback that I get from the people that use it. Um, they use it in so many different ways. Some people use it to track their menstrual cycle. Some people use it to go look at the stars. Um, other people who are really into like astrology, they look at uh, they look at it to see when they should cut their hair um, according to the moon cycles. Um, my favorite way to use the calendar is by 
looking at the apogee and perigee um, of the moon, but it's the proximity of the moon, I feel has such a huge impact on uh, our, our moods um, and our cycles. Um, and so I really pay attention to that. And I do a lot of anti-inflammatories when the moon is closer <laughs> versus when it's furthest away. How can people find your work and what, el what else will they find on your website? Yes, uh, spiralspectrum.com is the website. And um, we do have an entire section uh, with um, astrology reports for people who are into that as well, um, especially for, I know that you have a mostly astronomy podcast. Um, and so there's probably a lot of skeptics out there. Just, you know, does this work? Does it not work? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, Julie, thank you for joining us real quick for this recommendation. And I can't wait to see the new year. It'll be on its way soon. Thank you so much for um, always being a champion for us. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Night Sky Tourist Podcast. If you enjoy the Night Sky Tourist Podcast, please show your support by subscribing to it in your podcatcher and leave a written review. Your reviews are really important to me and they help others discover the podcast. Be sure to visit nightskytourist.com for great articles and resources. And while you're there, sign up for the monthly newsletter for exclusive content. Click on the podcast tab to find instructions for submitting your question for a future episode. Thank you to Ted Blank for your fantastic tips on buying a telescope and to Julie Wilder for taking time to share with us about her 2022 Cosmic Calendar series. Find links for things we've talked about in this episode at nightskytourist.com slash 25. We'll see you here again in two weeks. Until then, keep looking up. Thank you.